I got to tell you, uh, I have no idea why Pastor Tony <laughs> invites me to guest speak for you. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, but uh, I'm very thankful that he does. Um, I actually normally don't speak at my church because my lead EM pastor normally does the speaking. So the last time I've spoken was last year, uh, September, I believe, and uh, I was nervous as a dog. But uh, I, I'm, I'm very thankful to be given this opportunity, and, and after we pray, I'll go into a fairly long introduction because I need to get some business out of the way. Uh, but before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> uh, Father, thank you so much for your grace and your kindness. And Lord, thank you so much that you have been so faithful to us. That, Father, we are reminded in your words that your word is like a double-edged sword, able to pierce both uh, bone and marrow, and be able to pierce the division of soul and of heart. And, Father, I pray that you would discern the thoughts of our hearts. But, Lord, what a terrifying thing it is to be under the knife of your word. And, Father, we tremble. But, Lord, I pray that we would find hope and rescue and redemption in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for your sheep in here tonight, that you, O Christ, would be the good shepherd, that you would lead them by streams of water, that as we are reminded hundreds of years ago, that Father, though you had caused the world to drown in a flood, you had saved nine souls on that ark. And Lord, we come before you, and I ask that you would save these 60 souls in the ark of Christ. Father, would you fill us with your spirit? We thank you, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're just going to read from verse 17 to 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17 to 19, and I'm going to also read uh, chapter 2, verse 14, but I'll read that. If you've ever gone into a court of law, when the judge comes in, they ask you to stand. Well, I'm going to ask you to do the same as well as we read the words of God, for these words are much more mightier than the words of a judge. We do this in reverence of God. If we can stand, and in the early church, they would take turns reading the scripture. So I will read the odd-numbered verses. If you can read verse 18, I will read verse 19. And then, oh, sorry. If you could read verse 18, I'll read 19. Or, sorry, we'll read 19 together. So I'll read 17. You read 18. We'll read 19 together. Here's the reading of God's holy words. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I was uh, instructed to give kind of an encouraging, uh, fire you up for evangelism kind of message. And uh, initially, I thought I had six messages, and I was really worried because I was saying to myself, there's no way I could cover this in six messages. Come to find out, I only got three. <laughs> uh, so it, it put me in a dilemma. And uh, normally what I would do is I would start with the basics 
uh, I realized that oftentimes when you preach to a group as such as you, people who have been in the church for a long time, uh, we have this tendency to kind of have the mindset that, hey, I already know what the gospel is. Or I've already read, I know the stories of David and Goliath. Or I already know the stories of Noah. Uh, and so we kind of brush it aside. But uh, there is so much more to the gospel than just simply the gospel in terms of just being able to regurgitate facts. Uh, and so normally I would start with the basics, but because I was only given three messages, uh, I have decided to break it down this way. Tonight we're going to talk about the power, the power of the gospel that is. Tomorrow morning we're going to talk about the means, and the means is going to answer the question, how does God save people? And then the last night's message is a very important message. It's going to be the motivation, but I'm going to tie in the theme of motivation to the question of how do you know you are saved? When it comes to salvation, there are two very important questions that need to be answered very well. The first question, of course, is how is somebody saved? And, of course, that's the gospel message. You know, Jesus died, rose again, believe in him, etc., but the second question is maybe even more important than that. How do you know you're saved? How do you know that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins? How do you know that? How do you know that you are a child of God? How do you know that when you die, you will actually go to heaven? And so I want to address that because that's going to be tied in to the motivation of why we should be preaching the gospel. So that's how I'm going to break it down. Uh, but... With that being said, let me go over a couple of things. Uh, tonight, we're looking at 1 Corinthians. Uh, so so we're going to talk about those three things. Now, I, I also want to say a couple more things. Uh, unfortunately, because of the only three messages I'm getting, I can't go over, and I know this is very important, but oftentimes there are reasons why we don't evangelize. I get it. The reasons are, I'm afraid. It's very awkward going up to somebody and talking to them. Or the reasons are, I don't want to shove religion down somebody's throat. Or the reason may be, I just don't know about, I don't have enough answers to be able to share the gospel. And there's all these slew of reasons, but I can't address all that. I can't go over a message on each reason. So what I'm going to do is just give you the reason why you should evangelize. And again, that's going to be my last message. Now, I was listening in on one of your seminars I know Lee Strobel's son. He's a professor at Talbot. He doesn't hate me. He just doesn't like me. <laughs> Lee Strobel. Uh, he gave me a C in his class. That's okay. That's okay. I'm sure one day in heaven we'll reconcile. Uh, <laughs> Lee Strobel. <laughs> but um, I was listening in on your conversations and whatnot. And this is because I can't, I'm not going to even go over apologetics. But because you guys are covering apologetics, I'll just say this one thing. Uh, if you want to become an expert at being able to detect counterfeit bills, let's say you work for the Treasury, you want to work for the U.S. government, you want to work for the Secret Service, it's the Secret Service that investigates counterfeit claims. If you want to be an expert in counterfeit bills, you don't have to know what every counterfeit bill looks like. You just have to know what the true bill looks like. And then you can detect every single counterfeit bill. In the context of us, what that means is, as Christians, when you go to go and evangelize and when you are faced with dilemmas and questions, you don't necessarily have to overcome their objections, per se. You first need to know exactly what it is that Christianity teaches. 
You need to know it very well. And you need to be very sharp about it. You need to spend time and you need to understand in depth, not just in brevity, not just in generalities. You need to know what scripture teaches. But I also realize that sometimes you might be put in a situation where you go to a country in Latin America, per se, where the predominant religion is Catholicism. And I can tell you, personally studying Catholicism, that there is a vast difference between Christianity and Catholicism. If you are ever put in that situation and you don't have the time to go and become a seminary student or a master of the scriptures, I want to encourage you, go on that church's website. Go to their main website, the denominational website, right? Go to the Seventh-day Adventist main website or go to the Mormon's website and every single one of those religions will have a statement of belief. And go and read it. And as you read it, jot down notes and ask yourself, in what parts of these statements does it contradict Orthodox Christianity? And go from there. So if you don't have the time and you, and you don't, you know, obviously, you know, no matter how much you study the Bible, you will never become an expert at it. There's just too much to study. But if you don't have the time and you're going to a country like that, go and find out what it is they believe and then start from there with objections. But with that being said, there's going to be a lot that I think I'm going to say that is going to step on your toes. And so if you don't ever invite me back, I understand. You don't have to feel bad. Uh, but before you pick up your stones... I want to ask you for a favor. If and when we come to that position where what I have to say is different from whatever belief you have held, the first question I want you to ask is, is what Pastor Sam just said biblical? In other words, is there a biblical basis for what he has just said? That's the first question. The second question you need to ask yourself is, what I hold to be true, is there a biblical basis for it? Is what I hold to be true, is there a Bible verse that I can turn to and say, this is why I know this is true? Now, let me give you an example. As Christians, we've been so church for so long, we like to say these catchy Christian phase, phrases such as, God is love. That's true. There's no question that God is love. My question to you is, where did you get that information? Where in the Bible does it say God is love? Or did you just magically pull it out of thin air? Or you just went from hearsay and you're depending upon somebody else's word? Where in the Bible does it say God is love? You need to be able to pull that verse. Because the foundation of our Christian life has to come from what we know. And you do that all the time, by the way. Everything that you do in terms of action comes from your thoughts. So when you go window shopping and you say, I can't afford it. It's not something that I need. And then you convince yourself it's something that I want. You convince yourself that it's not, it's not just a want, it's a need. And then you convince yourself this is the greatest sale on earth. I'm going to get it. You, you're buying it because you think it's a great deal. So your mind thinks it's a great deal. I'm going to buy it. When you come across a homeless person, you are judging them. And you're asking yourself, is this homeless person trustworthy? That is a judgment that you are making in your mind because based upon that judgment, you are now going to act. When you drive and you have to make a split-second decision between do I run this yellow or do I stop, I would floor it, of course. You're making a judgment call based upon what you know. All of your practices and habits comes from what you believe. And that should be true of Christianity. 
If you want to be a true disciple of Christ, then you need to know the word of God. Why? So that we can obey God's words. So let me give you the introduction for tonight. Let me read it to you one more time. It says, uh, let me read verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now let me give you an introduction to the church in Corinth before we look at this topic. The church in Corinth was planted by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul planted this church, and he was senior pastor of this church for about a year and a half. A year and a half, 18 months, he was senior pastor. At some point, Paul left this church. And there was a fellow by the name of Apollos that came around. And he became senior pastor for about two and a half years. So this man named and Apollos comes up in the book of Acts as well. But Apollos took over the leadership of the church for about two and a half years. And then we're fairly certain that after Apollos left, we are fairly certain that after he left, a guy by the name of Cephas, which just simply means Peter, Cephas just means rock, Peter means rock, Peter, the apostle Peter, the one that denied Jesus three times, he was the senior pastor for about six months. We're fairly certain that was the case. That was the case. Now, what is happening in the church of Corinth is that there is division going on. Let me tell you what is happening. The members of the church are fighting. They are arguing with one another. And they are arguing about who is the best leader in the church. They're arguing. There are some people that say Paul was the greatest leader. There are some people who say Apollos was the great leader. There are some people who are arguing that Peter was the greatest leader. So there are people in the church, and they're all fighting about who the great leader is. And let me tell you what is so ironic about this. None of those leaders are there. When this division is going on in the church, they have all left the church by then. So they are arguing over the leadership of the church with the leaders not being there. They've already left. And the group that had the most following, and by the way, the leaders were not the ones who were dividing the church. The group that had the most following was Apollos. Now, why would that be? Why would Apollos be? I'm going to answer that in a question. It wasn't Paul. And it wasn't Cephas. The reason being is because for, for Cephas, for Peter, Peter was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. He was the original 12. Paul was not. If there was any man to have any credibility in the church, of course, the people would say, look, Peter's the greatest leader because he was one of the original 12. Apollos and Paul were not. And Paul, of course, was not one of the original 12. He was an apostle that met Jesus on the way to Damascus. He wasn't there when Jesus did his three and a half years of ministry. And so the people of this church are fighting, fighting over the leadership of the church. There's division going on in the church. And that is why one of the reasons why Paul writes this letter. It's called 1 Corinthians because Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. He writes a letter. Now, let me tell you what Corinth was like. If there's a church that is the equivalent of Corinth today, it would be Las Vegas, no doubt. Corinth was the hub of trade. It was the financial epicenter. But Corinth also had a reputation for sin. Corinth had a reputation for prostitution. 
for homosexuality, for drunkenness, for idolatry, for pagan religion. They had a reputation for corruption. Those in authority took pride. Uh, sorry, those in authority took bribes. Corinth was the Las Vegas of today. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you know what is so amazing about that? In the middle of this setting, God had his church. God had redeemed a people out of these people and planted his church. God saw, God, as he said to Peter, that the church is my church. Peter, he tells Peter, he says, Peter, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Not even Satan and all of his spiritual forces will ever cause the church to fall. This should give you great hope. It should give you great hope if your church is ever going through division. It should give you great hope when people and leaders are not being faithful to God's calling. It should give you great hope when people in the church are being hypocrites. It should give you great hope when people in the church are not living out their Christian life. It should give you great hope when people in the church have backstabbed you and caused revenge against you. It should give you great hope when the church has caused a tremendous amount of suffering in your life because you ought to know that this church will prevail. Why? Because it's the church that Christ bought with his blood. And nothing will stand against such a church. Nothing, not even the gates of Hades. So here was a church, and it was divided. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, here's what Paul says. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of, be, cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So we have a church. We have division going on in church. Paul's writing a letter. The question is, is what does Paul write in his letter? And here's what he says. He says, the word of the cross is folly. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Now, notice with me, and I know for some of us, we don't like this. For some of us, we just don't like black and white categories. But this is what Scripture teaches. The Bible teaches that there is only two sides. Let me give you examples. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. There's no middle ground. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. You are either under the flesh or you're under Christ. You are righteous or you are not. You are either in the light or you're in the darkness. There's no other option. The Bible does not say, well, there is a middle ground where if you're unsure, you can just stay there until you decide. No, you are either going to heaven or you're going to hell. You can go through the entire scriptures. There's only one of two options. You're God's people or you're not. You've been adopted as God's child or you're not. You are his son or daughter, or you're not. And here, Paul says the same thing. It says that the word of the cross, which is the gospel, is only one of two things. It is either foolishness to those who are perishing, or it is the power of God to those who are being saved. In other words, what Paul's saying is that when you receive the gospel, it will only create one of two things in your heart. And you need to ask yourself this question. The question is, is this message foolish or is this message the power of the gospel? 
is this message the power of the cross. Now, why does Paul say that? Well, let me give you an example. Let me tell you why. Why was Apollos so popular? Why was, so Paul, why was Apollos so popular in the church? In Acts chapter 18, it tells us, it says that now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. The reason why Apollos was so popular was that during the days of Greek culture, what was prized, what was prized amongst the Greeks was rhetoric. It was your ability to deliver a message. What was prized amongst the Greeks was how well you spoke. It was how well that politician conveyed his or her message. What was prized among the Greeks was how well you could convey something. And here's the Apostle Paul, and he says, no, 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 no. That's not how you and I are saved. We are not saved because of eloquent wisdom. That's not how we are saved. You are not saved by eloquent wisdom. Look with me. In the following verse, verse 20, it says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the one who is a scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who we believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Paul says that the power of our salvation Salvation comes from the gospel of God. He says it comes from the gospel of God. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me put that in today's context for you. You will never see the gospel being preached on CNN. You will never hear the gospel being written over your front page news. You will never see the gospel being proclaimed in your workplaces. The Logan of Kia will not be, we preach Christ crucified. You will not see even the gospel message hanging on the entrance to that hospital bed. Why? Because the gospel is foolishness to the world. It's absolutely foolish. What is important to the world is not the gospel. What is important to the world is money, sex, and power. What is important to the world is how can I expend our business? How can I increase my ROI? How can I get a double investment on my return? How can I make my IPO successful? What is important to the world has nothing to do with the power of the cross. My questions to you, brothers and sisters, is what is the gospel to you? Is the gospel foolishness or is it power? Because what the world glories in is the world glories in a man who dies at the age of 41. And what he did with his life was he became an expert in throwing a ball into a hoop. That is foolishness. Now, I'm not saying I don't know where Kobe Bryant is. I can't judge that. I don't know him. I would dare not judge that. What I am talking about is the reaction of the world. What I am talking about is what the world prizes in. What the world sees as foolishness is the gospel. That is why when you go up to the world 
And you say, wait a second, let me get this straight. You give your mind to a church? Why? Foolishness. You go to church every Sunday? Why? Foolishness. You believe that a man who died 2,000 years ago has some sort of implication on your life and for eternity? Foolishness. I mean, you might as well just say, hey, I believe in Albert Einstein, and I think I'm going to go to heaven because of that. Foolishness. The world finds it utterly foolish. But let me give you a clear example of why the world finds it utterly foolish. New York Times article, February 16, 2012. I'm going to paraphrase this for you. How many of you guys love Target? Great. Well, it's not really a question about Target. Amazon, Walmart, they all do the same thing. Target wanted, Target, well, I used to work at Target. I, I don't anymore. <laughs> In 2012, Target went up to one of their statisticians. His name was Andrew Pohl. And Andrew Pohl was a statistician, and two colleagues from the marketing department went up to Mr. Pohl, and they asked him a question. They wanted to figure out, how can we know if a customer is pregnant before she even wants us to know it? That was a very important question. Why? Because whoever knows first can market to that person first. If you know somebody's pregnant, or any other thing for that matter in your life, marriage, some sort of major life event, you can market certain things that is tied directly into that life stage. So they went up to Andrew Paul because they wanted to figure out how can we find out who is pregnant before they even tell us that they're pregnant. Now, on one hand, it's public news. Believe it or not, all birth certificates are public news. All marriage records are public news. All divorce records are public news. All you need to do is go onto the county website, type in their name, and you can find out who was born when, when they got divorced, when they're married. It's all public news. But what if you could find out before it wasn't even public news? What if you could find out before they, haven't, they weren't even born? That would give you actually quite a bit of advantage. If you knew that somebody was going to have a child before they were born, you could have a tremendous advantage over your competitors. Now, whether or not you know this or not, if you've ever shopped at Target, they have a secret ID for you. It's in this article. You can go online read any time. It's called a Target Guest ID. And if you've ever shopped at Target, they know everything about you. They know what car you drive. They know where you graduated. They know how much money you make. They know who you're married to. They know your friends. They know what you buy, when you buy it, what store you buy it, when you like to buy it. They know how close the Target store is to your house. In fact, every time you go into a Target parking lot, they record every single one of your license plates to figure out patterns of your buying behavior. There's nothing that Target does not know about you. And I tell this to all my friends all the time. Target CSI division is more sophisticated than the FBI. I guarantee you. You think Target is so stupid when people go and shoplift $10 things and you don't think Target knows? Of course they do. They just don't want you arrested for a misdemeanor. They're going to wait till you shoplift $250 worth and make you a felony. 
They're gonna, they want to find out who you're working with and pull down the entire crime. Target spends 24 hours a day going online, buying stolen goods to lift fingerprints to figure out who stole it and match that with the camera. They go through an extreme length. Why? Because, believe it or not, companies like Target and Walmart lose 10% of their sales due to loss. 10%. I used to work at Costco. Costco, the one I used to work at, was the fifth busiest Costco in the nation. During Christmas time, Christmas time, every single day, my store brought in $1.1 million in sales. One Costco. $1.1 million in sales went through one Costco, and that was 15 years ago. I'm sure it's a lot more now. There's a lot of money to be lost. But Target figured it out. Target found out that people who were about to have a child started buying different things during certain periods in their life. So, for example, when they got to their second trimester, they would start buying certain vitamins. And they narrowed down 25 different categories. Well, one day, this father walks into a Target store, and he goes up to the manager, and he's yelling his ear out. He says, how dare you? How dare you send coupons to my daughter? How dare you send baby coupons to my 16-year-old daughter? How dare you do that? The manager was, of course, confused. The manager looks at the ad and he goes, indeed, they are baby coupons, and I have no idea why we sent them to you. I'm very sorry, sir. I'm very sorry. The man goes home, and the manager, of course, decides to follow up a few days later, and the manager calls the, the father and says, you know, I'm calling you back a second time because I really want to apologize. I don't know why your daughter got those coupons. The father goes, I, I owe you an apology. I didn't know certain things were going on in my daughter's life. She's pregnant. Target found out she was pregnant before her father did. Now, I want to ask you a question. Imagine that you had a daughter, and your daughter came up to you and said, Dad, I'm pregnant. But I want you to know I never spent any lubby-dubby time with any other man in my life, ever. I have never slept with anybody in bed, but I'm pregnant. How many of you guys would believe your daughter? No matter how much you love your daughter, no matter how credible your daughter may be, that is actually a foolish response. Why? Because you know in your mind that A plus B equals C. You know that there's no way that you can be pregnant unless you did sleep with somebody. Brother and sister in Christ, let me tell you something. When you go up to somebody who doesn't believe in the gospel, you're trying to convince them of that story. You're trying to convince them that Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, can somehow be born without a biological father. It's utter foolishness to the world. And I know, I know there have been great saints, and even saints today, Athanasius for one of them, or Augustine, I know there have been great saints who want to marry science and Bible together, but somewhere down the road, those two things are utterly different subjects. You can't convince anybody with the rational mind that somehow a child could be born without a mom and a dad spending time together. And that is what we are trying to do. That is what we are trying to do, or are we? Because the Apostle Paul says, no, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Now, why does the Apostle Paul... Why does the Apostle Paul take foolishness and not use the word wisdom? 
Isn't the opposite of foolishness wisdom? Wouldn't that make more sense? It would make more sense if the Apostle Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. Why does the Apostle Paul use the word power and not wisdom? Here's the reason why. If I'm wrong, ask Pastor Tony. Because I've failed Greek one three times. <laughs> I know, my church is worried. <laughs> the word for power in the Bible, in Greek, is dunamis. In the Greek, the word for power is dunamis. There have been many sermons that I've heard year after year on this, on really on first, or not first Corinthians, Romans Romans chapter 1, where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, it is the dunamis, right? It is the power of God. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about power, now, the word dunamis, what does that sound like? Well, what would you think of when you say dunamis? What, what English word do we normally derive from the word dunamis? We get the word dynamite, right? Something explosive, powerful, dynamite. Okay, that's not what you're thinking. That's okay. <laughs> but that's where we get the English word, dynamite. It comes from the word dunamis. But Paul is not talking about dynamite. How do I know? Because dynamite wasn't invented during Paul's day. It's anachronistic. Paul, there was no dynamite during the days of Paul. So Paul can't be talking about dynamite. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. When Paul says that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for those who are being saved, that word power is better understood in, in terms of the word ability. Ability. For it is the ability of God. For it is the ability of God in, for those who are being saved. Not a destructive power, but the ability. And let me tell you, let me share with you where in the Bible we get that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 to verse 20. Let me read it to you. It says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which... What are the glorious riches, the what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believed, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What the apostle Paul means by that is that the power that saved you. Not the power to convince your mind that somehow you can have a virgin birth without having lovey-dovey time. Not, this is not, brothers and sisters in Christ, evangelizing is not trying to change somebody's mind. We do not market Jesus. We do not go and give better arguments than the other side. That is not what evangelism is. Because no matter what argument you present, it is absolutely foolish to think that a man could rise from the dead. No matter what argument you give, it is absolutely foolish to think that a man could live in the whale of a fish for three days. No matter what argument you give, it is absolutely foolish to think that painting a lamb's blood on the side of a door will somehow not cause death to your firstborn son. 
No matter what argument you give, it is absolutely foolish to think that in the middle of Mount Sinai, bread will fall down from heaven. That is foolish. And if you believe that today, it's because of the power of God. And what was this power of God able to do? It was able to raise Christ from the dead. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the ability of God to do the utterly impossible. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you only begin to understand how utterly impossible it was for God to save you from your sins until you begin to understand how utterly spiritually bankrupt you were. You don't begin to understand what a miracle it is to be saved and to be called a child of God until you begin to understand how deeply lost and without hope you once were living according to the power of the prince of this air. You don't begin to understand how glorious God's grace is until you begin to understand your future was to be apart and separated from God forever. There you and I were, and we were being bought after master after master in the marketplace of sin. You and I had been under the master of the sin of money. You and I had been under the master of the sin of pornography. You and I had been under the master of power. You and I had been under the master of all these sins. And you and I were being traded from one sin to another. And God redeemed you out of the marketplace of that sin with the blood of Jesus Christ so that you would never go back. So that he could call you yours Forever and ever, to the glory of God the Father, amen. You were picked up from the kingdom of darkness, and you were taken. You were kicking and screaming because you didn't want to go, and God tied your arms, and he picked you up and carried you into the kingdom of his light. And he said, you are mine. You belong to me. You are not to live according to the world. The gospel is no longer foolishness to me. But rather, to the Christian, the gospel is the incredible good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power. It is the demonstration of God's power to be able to do the utterly impossible. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know how powerful sin is? If you're any kind of Christian like me, I'm sure you're struggling through your sins. I was very hesitant to speak for you guys because I've been struggling in my walk with God so much. But let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ conquered sin and death? Do you really believe that? And if Jesus conquered sin and death, then why are you still so utterly powerless against your sins? Why are we so utterly prone to wander? As the song says, if Jesus has conquered it, why do we still live in this body of death, as Romans 6 says? Why? Why? Brothers and sisters in Christ, sin is so powerful. Now, it doesn't mean that Christ has not conquered it. More on that tomorrow morning. But I just want you to understand how powerful sin and how powerful Satan is. How powerful and how you and I are living we are living in this invisible world where spiritual dominion is, where spiritual battle is taking place. And the world finds 
the word of the cross as utterly foolish. Foolish. The world finds it utterly foolish. I want to close with this couple things. I went to Iceland this past summer for missions. I know, out of all places, who goes to Iceland, right? Uh, Iceland, Iceland is uh, about the size of Santa Ana, 300,000 people. In the summer, it doubles because tourists come, so at most, about 600,000. My pastor, my Ian pastor, wanted me to find a country where a language would not be a problem, but it still felt like a mission trip. So in other words, you know, not necessarily going down to L.A. or East Coast, but actually leaving the country, but going to a country where they still spoke English. And for me, I love the cold. I love it. And so the first thing I was thinking of was Alaska. Uh, I wanted to go to Alaska. I love polar bears. Could not wait to see my polar bears. Uh, and so I did some research looking up churches in Alaska, and I, I just found that there were, it was just so heavily populated with Iceland, or sorry, with churches that I just didn't think it was wise to go. I was one night just going through the web, web page of the Gospel Coalition, and there was this man by the name of Gunnar Gunnarsson who was blogging on the Gospel Coalition website, and he's a native pastor from Iceland. And he started talking about Iceland, and he wrote that Iceland is one of the few countries in the world that has eliminated Down syndrome through abortions. Yeah, that's right. Iceland eliminated Down syndrome through abortions. Iceland is a country that has a church state. In a recent poll of 145 church past state pastors, they were asked, how many of you guys would perform a homosexual marriage? Only three said no. And there was this deep spiritual desire in my heart to go to Iceland. But if you know anything about me, I hate Europe. I don't want to go to Europe. I have no desire to go to Paris. No desire to go to Italy. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy with Panda Express. I'm happy with Olive Garden. You want Italian food? Take me to Olive Garden. I'll, I'll be so happy with that. But Iceland is a European country. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to go to a European country, Lord. There's no way I'm going. I ended up going. I went on a scouting trip with 30 your denomination's pastors, Southern Baptists. Uh, I felt very alone. There were 30 men who were all married, and they're all Caucasian. I was the only Asian guy there. I had no idea what I was doing there, but I went. And uh, I, I came back, and I knew there was, no, there was really, you know, Pastor Gunnar, you know, already gets 60 invitations for for. He, he, he gets 60 requests every year for churches to come and do short-term missions. So imagine, if he did all 60, he'd be doing a church every week. And he only takes six out of those 60. And I knew there was no way we were going to be able to go. I come back, and my EM pastor goes, so what do you think? I said, we should go. I said, we should go. In the back of my mind, I, I had no idea what we're doing. He goes, oh, you think we should go? I was like, yeah, we should go. We should go. So I had the church drop 30 grand. And we bought plane tickets for 14 people. I spent, in, in Iceland, everything's expensive. Iceland is one of the few countries where McDonald's left because they couldn't make a profit. To give you an idea, a Subway sandwich in Iceland is $25. A Costco hot dog here is $1.50. A Costco hot dog there is $5.50. A half, a pound, sorry, a pound of strawberries there is $8.99 a pound. 
So it gives you an idea of how expensive Iceland is. We got a small Airbnb. I rented it out for eight grand. And I said, we're going. So we went, and I had no idea what we were going to do. I just knew I, I had to go. I just knew that there was spiritual darkness in this land. We had to go. We got out. It was 32 degrees, blizzard weather. And my, you should have seen the look on my EM pastor's face. He, he looked like he was in die, and I was in Disneyland. I was like, yes, this is great. This is great. I'm going to freeze my popsicles outside. Uh, but long story short, I want the reason, I'm not sharing this because I'm, I, I don't want to share the outcome with you. What I want to share with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, is usually when you go on a mission trip, we go to countries that are developing nations for the most part. Or maybe at best, first, second world developing into a first world. Whether that is, for me, my passion is Latin America. So whether you've gone to Guatemala, Peru, Paraguay, or you go to Thailand, Cambodia, whatnot. Brothers and sisters Christ, when you go to those countries, I know for the most part what happens. You go up to the place that you're going to do ministry, and there's a bunch of people waiting for you, and they're so excited to see you. And the kids come up to you, and they hug you, and you spend two weeks of your life, and you feel like you've done a, you feel like you were more blessed than you gave them any kind of blessing. But that's not with Iceland. That's not with European countries. There's nobody waiting for you. Actually, their question is, why are you here? Why are you standing in front of my supermarket? Why are you standing in front of my restaurant? Why do you have this fairy tale called the Bible in your hand? And I can assure you that there is no welcome arms in the country of Iceland or any other European country. But brothers and sisters in Christ, my personal experience from that is I came to realize that if I can preach in Iceland, I can preach anywhere. And it was actually the most liberating thing ever in my life. I think I only spoke to maybe five or six people, but from those five or six, and that was out of a hundred, by the way. Of the five or six people, I had deep, solid conversations with them. And their question would be like, why are you here in Iceland? First of all, what are you, Chinese? No, I'm Korean. <laughs> Don't judge me by my eyes. I'm Korean. <laughs> Where are you from, China? No, I'm from the U.S., right across the ocean. But they'd be like, why are you here? Brother and sister, I would, you know what we would say? We spent $30,000, and we have nothing to offer you. But we spent $30,000 because we wanted to bring to you what we believe is to be the most important message to all of mankind. That's it. I don't have toys to give to you. You actually have all the toys. I don't have any candies to give to you. Your chocolates are better than ours. I can't even offer to paint your house. Your house is so nice. You're a socialist government. There's no homeless people there. There's no homeless in Iceland. It's socialist. 50% taxes, free health care. What are we going to do, bring drugs? You want some amoxicillin? It's free. There's nothing you can offer to those people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a situation where indeed it is truly going to be a spiritual warfare. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not about convincing them to believe in Jesus. It is about praying and trusting that the power of God do the, will do the miraculous work of saving their souls. 
And what does that mean for you and I? I'm going to talk about practice tomorrow morning, but what does that mean for you and I? I want to ask you the question here tonight. Is the gospel foolishness to you, or is it the power of your salvation? Do you marvel at your salvation? When was the last time you went to God and you say, God, I'm a wretched man. Your scripture says that the wages of sin is death. I deserve nothing but your eternal wrath. Father, you could have placed me anywhere on this earth. It is you that created all things. You are the sustainer and giver of life. You could have caused me to be born into a family that practices voodoo. You could have caused me to be born into a family that practices Catholicism. God, you could have put me anywhere on the face of this planet. You could have made me Sudanese and put me in the country of Sudan where I'd be working for five cents a day. You could have done anything, but you put me here and you gave me this life and you gave me a salvation that I could never pay back no matter what I did. Father, I thank you for this gift of salvation that you have graciously lavished your love upon me. Do you see that as the power of your salvation? And what does that mean to us as believers, especially in light of going out and preaching the gospel tomorrow? Brother and sister in Christ, it's not your power. You can't save anybody. Even as parents, you can't even save your own child. This, this, this salvation is utterly a gift. It is God who displays and lavishly great. God obviously gives his power unto those whom he loves. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what that means for us is that for those who are lost, for those who are walking not in light but in darkness, for those who you know that if they were to die today would go to hell, for those who you know who have not confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, the only thing you can do is go before the Lord and plead. Father, please, please don't let this person go to hell. I've gone to so many funerals this past year. And I've sat there, funeral after funeral, and I've listened to their eulogies. I've listened to the eulogies of son and father. Sorry, son and daughter. I've listened to the eulogies of best friends. And you have no idea how it burdens my heart when in their eulogies they mention nothing about God. There's no mention about that man or woman's spiritual condition. When you die, what will they say about you? Will they say, Steve was a godly man. Sharon was a godly woman. He lived for eternal things. She labored for the cross. What will they say at your deathbed? What will they remember you by? Will they remember you as somebody who labored for eternity, who labored for eternal things? Or will they simply labor, remember you as, oh, this was the guy that I had great memories with? How would you feel if you one day died and went to heaven and you saw your mom and dad in hell? How would you feel if you one day died and went to heaven and you saw your wife or husband in hell? Brothers, I hope. Sisters, I hope that that would not be your case. But this gift of salvation is not up to you. It's not up to me. 
It is utterly the demonstration of the power of God. And for those who are being saved, it is the power that has been demonstrated in your life, the miraculous work that you who were once dead to sin was made, was made alive to Christ by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you.